0: everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Alad Davies about his new book, The City of London and Social Democracy, The Political Economy of Finance in Post-War Britain. Alad, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thanks very much, Mark.
0: I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Um, so I'm uh, a historian of uh, Britain in the 20th century, and I, uh, I'm interested in... Um, Uh, kind of economic policy and politics Um, right throughout the 20th century I suppose but mostly focused on the post-war period Uh, and uh, this book we're going to talk about is the product of my uh, PhD research which I completed in 2014 um, at the University of Oxford Um, and I now uh, after working for the last three years while writing up the book at the University of Bristol in the UK I now uh, just started a job teaching at the University of Cambridge.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thanks.
0: What led you to select this as a, a topic for your thesis and your first book?
1: Um, so I think what really motivated me was uh, the financial crisis um, drew my attention to, to the politics of finance and of the City of London. So I became um, really... Um, interested in the question of why Britain has this huge financial sector and how it has come to be so uh, dominant within British politics uh, in at the end of the 20th century and today. Um, and I sort of wanted to understand a little bit how the city fitted within the overall story of britain in the 20th century and and to explain perhaps though i'm not really sure i've got there quite yet to try and explain perhaps how um something of the uh something about the financial crisis and britain's role w- within that um so yeah it's very much uh motivated by contemporary political and economic questions, at least in the first instance. And then as a historian, of course, you end up being pushed backwards in time um, because even though this is, you know, relatively contemporary history going up until the end of the 1970s, uh, you really are constrained by uh, source material and getting in archives and stuff. So um, I think that's uh, going to be a long project for me going over the next few years, really working up to the present perhaps and thinking about how what I wrote about in this book, which looks at sort of the 1960s and 1970s, um, how that leads forward into the 1980s and Thatcherism through into uh, into sort of the politics of Britain in the 90s and early 2000s. So hopefully I'll be working on this for some time to come, really. <laughs> you
0: really do capture in this book a very critical period, and it's something that uh, you explained early on. Uh, on the one hand, you have the city, which as a financial, as, as a... For lack of a better word, an industry has been part of Britain for centuries. It's a mm-hmm. uh, for for, the, for those listeners who might be a little unfamiliar. It's sort of the British equivalent of, of Wall Street or or yeah. the Boers, and in Paris, and and, and so you have an, uh, a a, a re, uh, this section of London which has been a, a critical component of the British economy f- going back to uh, the 18th century and even earlier. But when you open your book. In 1945, as you explained, the British economy is balanced very differently than it would be for people who are familiar with it today. Now, I was wondering if you could explain what that balance was and what the city's role was within the British economy in uh, 1945
1: and the 1950s. Sure. Well, I suppose the first thing to do is I'm going to knock us back into the end of the 19th century and say that the city of london yeah like you say it's like it's it's a term for uh the financial sector in general um like wall street would be in the in the us but if you go back to the end of the 19th century the city of london was uh, at the center of the first age of globalization you know it, it, the 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 world banking system was based in london Capital money flowed around, it was exported around the world from London. Trade was settled in London. It, it really was the uh, a truly global uh, financial centre. And this um, dominance was uh, fate. Well, very severely destroyed, uh, d- uh, damaged by the First World War when the break with it liberal international trading order was was uh, was destroyed and the city sort of um attempted to hold on to an international a global role right through the 1920s and 1930s eventually resting on um on an area of um countries who who used sterling but really its, it's sort of global dominance was slowly um was was um trance was undermined and and we see a transfer over to 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 wall street and new, and new york by the end of the second world war the city's international role was is is really really constrained and really damaged so you have this internationally oriented financial sector that is is really limited in what it, in what it can do but at, after the end of the second world war uh a labor government in the uk is um is elected um on the promise uh, and with the idea of developing a sort of national uh, industrial economy that can overcome the weaknesses and the failures of the interwar period of high unemployment, but also can um, provide a way for Britain to... um, achieve some form of economic success so the focus is on really production of industrial products for sale abroad and in this context the city is quite it is has, has a difficult position because <laughs> its traditions and its inherited practices are all outward focusing outwardly focused internationally orientated but the post-war Labour government, um, like most uh, governments around the, around the developed world in this period, um, and even in other non-developed places, thinking about Latin America, are really focused on domestic industrial development. And the city is sort of in a, in a sort of awkward uh, position uh, in the 19, in the 1940s. And this really only gets worse for it throughout the 1950s um, and into the 1960s, where this focus on industrial um, modernisation and expansion becomes really the the central aim of the British state uh, for parties on the left and, and the right and increasingly the cities, what, what role the city still has uh, on an international level which is attached to um, the use of the pound as a currency amongst um, as a trading currency for a large number of countries in what's known as the sterling area increasingly comes um, uh, to be criticised and challenged and it really looks like the in the sort of age of social democracy, the city is um, um, sort of uh, seen as a holding back industrial modernization and development.
0: That serves as one of the I, what I thought was one of the most fascinating aspects of your book was this undercurrent theme of how you had these officials, these uh, uh, members of various governments, both uh uh, conservative, but especially labor, who thought of the economy in primarily an industrial context. You did have people who were familiar with finance, uh, going back to, say, Stafford Cripps in the 45 government. But it, it seems as though they were always thinking of the economy in terms of industry first. And in 1945, that reflected where the focus of Britain's productive activity was. But as you describe the evolution of the economy in the 50s, in the 60s, into the 70s, especially in the 1970s, where you see this shift away from the industrial basis of the economy to more of a service basis really uh, take place, that they're functioning with this older mentality that it's all about industry. And that finance is this aspect that they need to bring into line and not something that is emerging to become a dominant force in its own right.
1: Yeah. I think you have to understand that industry provides, uh, employment, stable quality employment to more people than, um, than financial services ever can. Um, you know, um, it also is, it's seen as being the source of greatest productivity gains, of modernization, of uh, if you think about them It's not it's not um, it's not inaccurate to, to see that industrial modernization as as, um, as the route to national prosperity and think about the huge growth in car use and all sorts of home appliances and what you know these really are um, these manufactured, um, products really are seen as um, the way forward um, for the national economy. So I would say that the way I characterised post-war economic policy in Britain is of one of state uh, intervention, not in a planned, direct, control, directly controlled way. It's not. It's not like that. But it's about using the state to try and encourage and develop. Uh, a modern and industrial economy um, because that was seen as the way to achieve prosperity across the whole uh, across the whole nation I I think but also you have to understand that I'd say that 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 the this national economic strategy was formed during the 1940s when you have a Labour government that is you know representing uh, workers and workers need work but also you need to understand it in, in the context of Britain has this after the war, it's this terrible problem, which it basically can't afford to pay for its imports. It has this huge problem with its bans of payments. So it, it has to find some way to export uh, to, to export enough to pay its way in, in the world. And so that's that's why the, the post war British state sort of settles on this sort of interventionist de, uh, industrial development strategy.
0: As you describe uh, early in the book, they are also concerned not just with paying Britain's way in the world, but finding the resources to uh, modernize and uh, develop Britain's industrial base. And Mm. you begin with this focus upon institutional investment. I was wondering if you could explain what institutional investment is, uh, what institutions uh, Mm. were there, and how various governments sought to harness uh, that investment for to achieving those industrial aims?
1: Yeah, of course. So throughout the post-war period, more and more individuals, um, workers are enrolled in in pension schemes. Uh, and those pension schemes, you know, every, workers and their employers contribute a percentage of, uh, of the wages of, of those workers and employees to To a fund which is invested in the in the in the the stock exchange and in other sort of assets, and over the course of the this is a hugely hugely significant and and novel development in the post-war period. It takes place. The the real rapid really rapid growth is in the 1950s and 1960s, where you've got the emergence of these huge funds um, of um, workers accumulated savings that need to be invested. And it's not just pension funds, of course, there's also insurance companies, also, so uh, life insurance, things like that. So you've got these big uh, agglomerations of, of investment capital that has uh, never really, it's completely, it's completely new. If you go back to before the war and earlier, most investment was by, by individuals, uh, rich individuals. So this very significant development. Um, the growth of sort of uh, of institutional uh, of institutional investment uh, occurs in the 1950s and 1960s, but actually occurs um, outside of uh, outside of political debate. Really, it's very interesting that nobody really notices it's happening. It's sort of a sort of quiet uh, quiet revolution. But by the time you get to the 1970s, Britain's facing a very severe industrial crisis. It's very severe. Uh, like most of the uh, rest of the uh, industrial world it 's particularly uh, bad in britain and suddenly there is a need for more radical um, a more radical approach to trying to not just develop the industrial economy but now sa- now save it yeah, britain saving britain 's industrial economy and so um, figures on the on the left uh, of the labor party um, and and in the trade union movement argue that these huge collections of funds uh, uh, collections of savings in in pension funds uh, and insurance funds really offer an opportunity to channel uh, channel investment into areas that that can be areas of the industrial economy that can uh, provide future growth and prosperity so you get this sort of very radical new approach to financial, uh, to investment policy, um, which is not not really evident throughout the 50s and 1960s. Now, ultimately, it um, uh, it doesn't really go anywhere, um, unfortunately for for the people uh, who are advocating it. Though it continues to be advocated right through in the 1980s by by the Labour Party. So some figures in the Labour Party and on the left think that you should entirely take over these funds and invest them directly. But for the most part, the the idea is to find some way of uh, coordinating the investment interests of those funds with the investing needs of the the economy uh, overall. So uh, it's a a revolution in Britain's financial scene uh, that goes unnoticed until the crisis of the 1970s. And then there's some effort to to save Britain's very severely ailing uh, industrial economy with these, these funds.
0: It reminds me in some way of the institutional activism that you see today, which is this idea of uh, this recognition that these funds exert so much uh, uh, influence by virtue of their ownership of assets that there's the people uh, invariably ask the question, well, perhaps we can use that influence to push things in a certain direction. And what you're describing here, though, is not so much the internal aspect of it, but this external uh, perspective of these very important uh, pl- uh, politicians and, 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 and other uh, leading figures saying, well, we have all this capital here, why can't we possibly use it? Which then raises the question, why didn't the institutions themselves, uh, in, why weren't they investing in British industry, and, and, and why ultimately did these efforts come up short?
1: Well I think uh, you have this argument over what what is the duty of the the institution the, inst- the the representatives of the funds and the insurance companies argued that they had one simple duty and that was to the person who put the money in the fund and they had no they didn't believe it was their uh, they had uh, it was right for them to do anything other than to invest in what they thought was uh, they thought were appropriate uh, appropriate areas now the criticism was that they were investing in these sort of short-term um, uh, short-term areas so you get scandals over the investment in art for example by uh, the coal uh, then national coboards investment um, uh, pension fund and you get scandals over investing in property which is very profitable but is really you know not using the assets of the national community as they're sort of conceptualized um, very effectively And actually, in the short term, it might be good for your, the the argument is made against the institutions. In the short term, it might be perfectly good for your fund to invest in this property. But what good does it do if in the long term, Britain is in severe long-term national economic decline? Because it's such an embedded idea in the post-war period, particularly on the left, though not, not entirely on the left, that the only route to prosperity is industrial expansion, and the only way to achieve that is through investment, more investment. Um, so it's very interesting. I I've subsequently I've been looking at this a bit further, and there's another tension in it, uh, which uh, is, it, is that the trade union, the trade unions want to sort of organise investment on a national scale to help industry overall. You uh, so think thinking about national industrial. Uh, revitalization but at the same time they're also asking that the individual contributors uh, to each fund are given a greater direct control over the assets that they own through their trade union. so you, you have a tension between local control over these funds which is similar to the kind of activism you, you describe versus a desire to use the nation the state the institutions of uh, of centralism of the, of the center uh, to, to direct national resources so it, it's very interesting tension it's also interesting in that you have these institutional investors who
0: the very fact that they haven't been investing in British industry in itself does seem to be a damning judgment of their sense of the profitability of British industry in the uh, post-war era. That they just don't see it as profitable as, as as you explained, you know, purchasing property or, or even uh, buying a, a Gainsborough or something.
1: Yeah, and that's the argument they make, really, which is to say, frankly, we don't turn down profitable opportunities. And if there were profitable opportunities in British industry, uh, we would invest in it. Um, and I suppose the, the counter argument from the left would be to say, well, that your version of profitability, profitability is, short, is very short term. Actually, long term profitability comes through long term patient investment in the industries of the future things like that and uh they w- the the institutions are very reluctant to move beyond what is quite a um uh quite a rigid investment strategy uh, invest approach to investment and and i think we have to try and uh understand both sides here you know it Particularly the institutions as well, because I think they, they do have an obligation to their their fund members, and I think the most interesting figure in um, in this debate is Harold Wilson. So Harold Wilson was the Prime Minister of the UK from in the late 60s, in second, well actually 1964 through until 1970, and then again 1974 to 76. And after he retires, he's appointed by the the then Prime Minister Jim Callaghan to, to Undertake an inquiry into the city, into Britain's financial se- system. Now, Wilson's not a really a very radical figure. Uh, well, he's certainly not a radical figure, um, but he does come around to seeing the the um, to seeing uh, the argument that the these huge funds ha- have a huge amount of power and there's a, and a huge amount of potential, and they needed to be directed in a more efficient and more um, uh, Uh, and in a way that is beneficial to 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 the long-term development of the british economy but at the same time he he really um he really does see also that that they simply have these funds have an obligation to the people who put the money in them and 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 it's you can't just commandeer these funds in in, uh, in in order to fulfill some sort of national interest because they really are Contribute. They have. They are the contributions of indi- not wealthy individuals. You know, just everyday uh, you, you know, w- working working people. And so, what Wilson, uh, working with the trade union representatives on his inquiry, tries to do is find a find a way to sort of solve this. Uh, and he proposes creating a fund into which a proportion of these institutions' funds would be channeled. Not all of them, just a proportion. Um, and that 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 fund would then be used. Uh, would then be invested um, in accordance uh, with um, um, with a strategy developed by the state, by um, trade unions, by businesses, um, for the for for sort of long for the long term, and uh, to, well to secure those contributions of the individuals' promises. The the proposal is to is, is to. Uh, ensure that they would they would they would receive uh, at least the minimum a minimum return so that no one's sort of money was uh, no one's uh, savings would be at risk now this idea is resisted uh, still by the financial sector which still argued that you know it's really an issue of profitability and and it's not that actually industry is not struggling for investment was what the, was what they argued um, but ultimately, it goes nowhere because in 1979, Margaret Thatcher's conservative government is elected. And uh, that sort of argument in favor of state um, intervention uh, for the sake of national economic development re- really is not is not popular.
0: As you explain, the idea of that in, uh, of that central fund is not the only idea being bandied about for greater direction over investment. You also explain the growing proposals in the 1970s to nationalize British banks. And here, mm-hmm. I, I think it helps to explain a bit that the Bank of England had itself been a semi-private entity till 1945, and it was nationalized by the Labour government. But now mm-hmm. what's being discussed in the 1970s, especially on the Labour left, as you explained, is not just the Bank of England now, but the entire banking sector, or at least a, a, a the a significant chunk of it to achieve with, with in, at least in part to achieve that goal of being able to direct investment towards british industry
1: yeah so if you go back to the 1930s uh, 19, well the interwar period in general the labor party it's quite um keen um on nationalizing so taking public ownership taking state control over the banking system with the the, the point the the aim being to um, direct credit to those parts of the economy that that needed it, um, but by the time you get to the end of the Second World War, um, this idea is dropped largely because it's politically um, it's politically very un, unpopular, um, but also because they, there's a greater faith that actually credit you know and uh, uh, Credit and investment could be more effectively directed according to um, demand management, so the the ideas of, of Keynes and others. So what the what happens is that the Bank of England is nationalised. Um, it, it's a strange sort of nationalisation in that it keeps a lot of its indep- it's it keeps a huge amount of its independence, but on the key key issue uh, of interest rates. So um, uh, the the basic interest rate that the Bank of England will uh, will lend other banks to, which has an effect on the whole economy. That shifts to the, the government, the Treasury, uh, which can decide, uh, which is uh, the Chancellor's then able to decide how credit, you know, the price of credit in the economy. So th- throughout the 1950s and 1960s, this settlement um, operates um, uh, operates without much um, criticism from the left. So this the demands for nationalisation disappear, uh, um, Disappear. Um, but with the crisis of the 1970s, um, there's a greater pressure uh, on the left for uh, the state to take basically direct control again of the banks. Now, we need to be careful in, fo- in, in saying that these ideas were very, very popular in the Labour Party, but probably very li- unlikely to be implemented because the the sort of the elite of the labor party the governing uh, the governing elite of the labor party the people in the positions of power didn't want to do it frankly because it was hugely unpopular and also because they doubted it would be that useful anyway but there are figures on the labor party left uh, who campaigned very vigorously in the 1970s to rena to nationalize the whole banking system and this is largely to do with this sort of what's deemed to have been a, a the inadequacy of post-war social democratic economic policy uh, but also due to the fact that the 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 banking system um, just is not just seen as being poor in terms of providing credit but increasingly the left criticizes it because it's just poor in providing commercial services to the to the public you know, there's no you've got five main banks basically and they don't they don't compete barely compete at all and when they are forced to compete in the 1970s, it leads to a massive crisis where all the banks put all their money in um, in uh, risky uh, property um, property lending, which leads to a crisis. So there's there's this sense that it has the the way the bank banking sector has been controlled in the post-war period has been inadequate. When they tried to make it compete in the 1970s, the conservative government it failed. So we might as well just take control of it and a direct credit to those parts of the economy that need it need it most
0: I found it to be a very fascinating episode for two reasons, one was that it it really does highlight the growing awareness especially within the Labour Party which was the party that essentially de- defined social democracy in post-war Britain uh, after, hmm. immediately after the war they're becoming increasingly aware of that the economy's changing, and that if they don't if they don't adapt, then their vision of social democracy is in jeopardy but it's also fascinating because, as you explained in the chapter and here's where you go uh beyond the government sources and and, and look at, the, at at the private records, the financial industry is becoming more active in terms of trying to shape policy not just in a defensive way but they're also beginning to appreciate their growing prominence and they're beginning to try to have a greater say in not just the you know direction of, of, of their own finances and, and what they do with their, their the monies under their control, but also beginning to ward off uh, the, these uh, interventions and, and assert greater control over, you know, not control, but greater influence of in British
1: politics. Yes, I think so. So, one thing that it does this, this external threat to various aspects of the financial sector and remember that we talk about the city but it's made up of lots of different interest groups uh in, of different investors different banking, different types of banks all these different people but what it does do is encourage them to take a more um become more active in in politics in the 1970s in the se- in simply to defend their their interests because as much as i say i don't think it was likely that the banks were ever going to be fully nationalized i, I find that unconvincing you never they never knew Bec- you, they didn't know that and it, it could have quite easily been different um and the more radical wing of the labor party might have gained more more prominence um so they they Took on a much more active um, engagement with politics. So traditionally, for example, we take the main, the main um, banks, the kind of banks that you go to on the high street, you know, on the street in America, you say Main Street, um, and uh, um, deposit your money in, and you know, get get a card from, and use it to spend in the shops. They traditionally, in the post-war decades, the fifties and sixties stayed out of pol- political debate and really engaged only with the state through the Bank of England. The Bank of England was their sort of um, the conduit for them to talk to, to government. But by the 1970s, as finance becomes politicized again, the, the the financial sector starts to engage directly. So I spoke earlier about Harold Wilson creating a committee. Well, the big banks uh, and uh, the their organization, the committee of uh, London Clearing Bankers, which is the name that they, they use themselves, Clearing Bankers, um, they produced this lavish report demonstrating um, their chal- uh, challenging the arguments that the banks had failed British industry and, and failed the British public and uh, making a counter-argument instead that really the problem with Britain was that it, the, the, the British economy was that uh, pro- levels of profitability were low, and uh, inflation was really the, the, the key issue and government intervention was the big problem. So they became much more active political actors uh, in the 1970s as a result of the threat to their continued existence.
0: It's not just a matter, though, of political engagement. It's also fa- this fascinating public engagement. You reproduced this uh, advertisement on uh, opposite page 168. Uh, it's on page one sixty nine, in which you have this uh, uh, ad that was in the Times in nineteen sixty eight, in which they're playing up this uh, this concept of invisible exports. They're making mm-hmm. the case that you know we have industry, we 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 send things across the world, but what we do finance it may not be. Something you could package in a crate and put aboard a ship and send abroad, but it is just as important and needs to be uh, respected as such. It, it's, it's a way of, it, it, you're starting to see this growing flexing of their, of their sense of self. And their uh, and their importance at a time when, as as you've uh, explained already in previous chapters, you still have policymakers in, in both parties still very much focused upon this idea of industry. They're not even thinking in terms of invisible exports yet. Already, you're starting to see these uh, these financial uh, uh, lob- lobbyists, uh, promoters, uh, what have you, beginning to play up that concept that this is what the British economy, you know, that this is important to the British economy as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the 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 criticism made of the financial sector, so if we take the institutions, is that they don't invest properly in British industry. They're short-termists. The criticism of the banks was that they didn't invest properly, they didn't extend credit to, uh, to British industry, and that was hampering the prospect for industrial development. But another criticism, which I sort of briefly mentioned at, at the start, was that, the, the city, particularly in the 1960s, was hanging on to a sort of international role, which was a sort of hangover from Britain's age of dominance, right? It's global dominance, that the city was more interested in trying to get back, to, in, 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 in looking abroad and operating as an international financial centre based on the use of um, the pound sterling as an international currency. Now in the 1950s and 1960s this became very this became criticized quite heavily um not by radical figures on the left this is this is quite a mainstream criticism that really this um holding on to um sterling as an international currency um is really a policy that only benefits the city and frankly we we need to Move on and think much more about industrial exports, industrial modernization and development. The problem being that the the maintenance of a high uh, sterling exchange rate is just is deemed to be bad for British industry and also imposes sort of what they call stop grow growth on the british economy so even before the 1970s, the city, particularly its international activities, um, which have been already very, very much constrained compared to what they would have been at the end of the 19, pri- you know, prior to 1914, um, the city is uh, city's international activities are under under threat. So, what the 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 chap- one of the chapters in the book looks at, is the formation of something called the Committee on Invisible Exports. And this is led by a, a man who's a, actually a journalist, one of the lead uh, main writers, uh, financial writers for the Times uh, newspaper. And they, he realizes that the city, for its international role to continue and be revived, uh, as it had, you know, looking back to um, to the end of the 19th century, had to make a new uh, argument for itself, a new justification for itself. It couldn't just rely on Old old assumptions, and so what Clark did is he revived this concept of invisible exports, which you, you mentioned, which he didn't he doesn't invent. It's a it's an old uh, old idea, but an invisible export is if you sell a car abroad, you can see the car, but if you sell um, uh, insurance um, or banking services to someone in another country, you can't see that, but it does earn income for uh, for the British for the British economy, um, so it. It, what he he was what he Clark argued was to, was to say that actually you feel, all this time British policymakers are obsessing about industry, but really we we're quite good at selling services to foreigners, and what um, this argument does is it sort of re recon- it challenges the um, how we put it the 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 consensual assumption about what the british economy is in the 1960s and in the 1970s the consensus is britain is an industrial economy it's the first industrial economy it's the economy of it it is where the industrial um uh, industrial revolution took place and that is sort of embedded in post-war social democratic economic policy but what clark clark argues is to say no britain is not primarily an industrial country it is a financial and it is a its its strengths lie in financial and commercial services, in global trade, uh, in in being part of the global trading network, providing those sorts of services. And I think this is really interesting because I think it it's a preamble to the re uh, reformation of Britain's national economic strategy from the late 1970s onwards, away from an, uh, an intense focus on developing in industry export and towards a new understanding of the british economy which says that britain is a financial commercial service provider and that legitimates um the the revival and frankly the the huge growth in the city of london as an international financial center in the in the latter decades of the 20th century
0: i like how you frame the shift away from Keynesian fiscal uh, focus of, of economic management that you'd seen after 1945 to monetarism which characterized the neoliberal Thatcher right movement in the 1980s in this context that in a sense it's almost as if the government is saying that that the that the not just the government's but the, the British state is saying Okay, from now on, we have to think what benefits finance and and the ability of finance to expand and, and prosper instead of just the uh, instead of just or pr- predominantly
1: industry. Yeah, if, uh, so I would say that um, the, on on the the final chapter in the book, which looks at, at monetarism, perhaps doesn't explicitly set out to to do that because the industrial. Uh, Focus of British economic policy is not, does not get displaced until, I I mean, I'm not really sure actually, but fully displaced uh, until later in the 1980s. On the chapter on monetarism, I'm, I'm very interested in, I came to write this chapter because the, the traditional story we have about monetarism right? it is an idea developed by Milton Friedman, and he said that inflation is caused by too much money being produced, and so you have to control the supply of the amount of money in the economy, um, and the government is in a position to do this, um, and, there, and therefore inflation will go away. And it's a very idealistic account, um, but at the same time, when I was doing when I was researching, I. I saw that there was a lot of arguments were made like much like what you you just said a moment ago that the monetarist strategy which involved you know, increasing interest rates very uh, very highly to control inflation and and cutting back on public expenditure um was simply a the expression of the priorities of what of the city of the financial sector and I thought that was very interesting because that that sort of Largely being ignored I think in uh, writing about sort of shift from Keynesian demand management to, to monetarism or the monetarist experiment uh, in the early 80s and so what I what I try to show in the chapter is that It, it revolves around the issue of of public debt really and um, I, I try to show how the various peop, uh, investors in the financial in in, in the market London markets who would buy government, British government debt, came to be influenced by monetarist ideas um, in the 1970s, and in coming to be influenced by monetarist ideas, changed their investment behaviour, and in changing their investment behaviour, created new pressures and demands on the on the economic policies of policy of the British state. So, it in in a sense it the monetarism I think the chapter in the chapter i argue is a capitulation to the demands of finance um or you know the, or the government uh, those who would buy the government's debt at a point where the government needs to uh, is borrowing very heavily but not necessarily coherent or planned or deliberate but in a sort of complex interaction between ideas and self-interest and um and sort of the institutions of the of the market institutions for selling government government debt. Um, I try to show how this sort of frankly messy process takes place. By the time you get to
0: the end of your book, then we've seen this dramatic transformation take place in the British economy, and in this transformation, the process has really done a lot to undermine a lot of the assumptions on which the social democratic vision of post-war Britain that was articulated in the 1940s had come to be based.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the post-war material conditions of post-war social democracy have disappeared. And I think we should see the 1970s, particularly that when I spoke about institutional investment and even the attempt to nationalize the, the banks, um, um, b- perhaps but blunt an idea as it was, was an attempt to reformulate that post-war social democracy, that, it, that that social democracy, which had it was an attempt to adapt social democracy to new material condition, ultimately ultimately um, failed. Now, social democracy readapted itself in the 1990s in a very different way, in a way that was much more, um, much less resistant to those material changes uh, and went, went much more with the the grain. Um, particularly of our large financial sector, uh, internationally orientated financial sector in London. So, new labour, the new Labour governments that were elected after 1997, are very strong supporters of global financial. The, the City of London is a global financial sector for, for various reasons, largely because the alternative national economic growth model of developing an industrial economy. Um, is is no long is seen as no longer particularly viable because large amounts of industry have disappeared, um, and types of industry that employ large amounts of people have disappeared. So that you know, Britain is left with uh, a large financial sector that brings in foreign income and tax revenues, and 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 um, um, and so social democracy adapts to the city in very different ways after. Uh, was it um, 18 uh, years of, of conservative government? Um, so it, it's very, you know, the world, Britain has been, uh, Britain's political economy is very significantly remade in the 80s and the 1990s. And I suppose in the book, um, th- this book, I like to think of as a sort of preamble to part of that, to try and put what happens in the 1980s and the 1990s, in a, in a context that doesn't simply say, well, this was due to uh, Margaret Thatcher and her governments who were influenced by what we might call neoliberal ideas or market liberal ideas. They, they actually, they, they, these had long term roots in the, in the post-war war decades.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? You've already explained that you're going to be pursuing some of these projects. Are you thinking in terms of a second book? Or are you thinking in terms of multiple books or articles?
1: Yeah, so I, I was very fortunate after finishing my PhD to get um, a position at the University of Bristol as a postdoctoral researcher working on a book with um, Hugh Pemberton and James Freeman who are at the University of Bristol. And Hugh is an, uh, an expert on, on the history of pensions. And so what we've written about is we've written a book on the Thatcher government's attempt to reform uh, the uh, pensions so that follows directly on from what we're talking about uh, talking about with the uh, institutional investors in the 1980s the real threat to the institutions doesn't come from the left it comes from the right and the Thatcher government sets out um, to destroy all the institutions and instead of have these collective pools of workers savings being invested in uh, in, in, in british industry or around the world they try to individualize everyone's pension so uh it's it's a nice follow-on and now that i that book is um currently being written up and uh I, my, my next project is to think about the successor to that committee on invisible exports i spoke about um which continues to this day actually it's developed and it, it now operates as the city's uh, main lobbying body. It's called the city uk but one of its really important um uh Subcommittees is called something called the Liberalisation of Trade in Services Committee, and this is a committee that um, campaigned for the breakdown of all barriers to the trade in financial and commercial services around the world in the 80s and the 90s. And I want to look at how that committee has uh, shaped Britain's national economic uh, approach to international economic um, uh, um, trading arrangements and what influence it had over the creation of global financialization, uh, gosh, sorry, global finance um in the in the at the end of the 20th century.
0: Well, that sounds like a fascinating project. Alan Davies, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thanks very much, Mark. Bye-bye.